Hello and welcome to Associated, the podcast where we're making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and today I have the pleasure of co-hosting with Tunde. I'll confess we've already been talking a little bit about our days before we started and we started with cycling. So Tunde, tell us, is it too cold to cycle in Stockholm at the moment? Hey Lois, no it's, it's definitely not too cold to cycle in Stockholm right now. We have been blessed with like some unexpected sun. So it's been blue skies and like 15 degrees for the past three or four days. So yeah, I have I have my bike out and yeah. Amazing. Okay, well, our guest today will sympathise with me because it was chucking it down this morning. I am a fair weather cyclist, so did not brave the conditions. But Fred Ursell, investment manager at Pembroke, is quite different. Fred, welcome to the podcast and please tell us about your cycling. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. I think... Cycling habits, I mean, I'm a commuter, so, so what I will say is that there's no such thing as, as bad weather, there's just such thing as bad gear. I love that and I respect that, even if I don't adhere to it myself. <laughs> a set of mug guards and a good waterproof jacket, that's all you need. Yeah, I need to, I actually need to invest in some waterproofs. I am someone who is like underinvested on the anti-water side of the cycling equation and overinvested on like the heat maintenance part. So I've been caught unawares one too many times. Yeah, yeah it's, it's essential. But luckily, your, your skin is waterproof. <laughs> yeah, that philosophy hasn't served me well. <laughs> um, but, but awesome. Fred, re- really excited to be, be talking to you. I think one of the things that we found so interesting is your journey into this world of, of venture. So it would be really cool to unpack how you made your way to Pembroke. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess I can, I can go for the long story. So I think most, most kind of people that, that I, I see in this, this space, traditional background, they went to university, went on to, to a graduate scheme and, and then kind of moved over. Um, but I, I actually never thought I would ever go to university. It was never really, really an option. So it's, it's, it's kind of a long story, so it's a fair wit. I guess I, um, I didn't really get on with school and I left as soon as I, initially I trained to be a plumber. So uh, I did, I did a, a year uh, year at college training to be a plumber. I always kind of thought I wanted to, to make money for myself and work for myself. The thing they didn't tell you um, at the start of this plumbing course was in the second year, you need an apprenticeship. And I finished my first year in 2008. And it was obviously quite a bad time to people to be doing house improvements. There, were, there wasn't much spare cash knocking around. So I was unable to get, a, get an apprenticeship. And I ended up going, to, going back to college and, and doing a degree, well, sorry, not a degree, a, a BTEC in sport. Because, because I like playing sport and it was kind of something to do. It wasn't necessarily a, a conscious decision. And then I, and I, I finished, I finished the course, probably still wasn't getting on with college, to, to be completely honest, and, and started working full-time. So I was working in the supermarket and just university kind of was never on the cards. And there's a, there's a funny moment that I remember I was sat in a, a friend's front room waiting to go out for the day. And, and he, was, he was doing his UCAS application and, and trying through clearing. And I, I didn't know what that, that was. And he said, yeah, you, essentially what you do is you, you phone up universities that are they're running the course anyway. And if they've got space, they'll listen to your application and, and they, may, they may take you on and, and put you on the course. And he said, well, you've been to college, haven't you? You should, um, you should give that a go. And he, I was like, no, 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 not, not, not for me. He said, well, it's only 20 pounds. Like, there's kind of a, it's, there's not really much. And so, so we there and then decided there and then joined him on this, uh, on this university trip. So we just started phoning up. We started, we looked at the rankings. Uh, we worked from the bottom up and the, the highest I got was, um, London South Bank University based in, based in South Bank. Uh, 
in London and it was it was kind of a, a strange shift it all happened very quickly because clearing you kind of less prepared to go you don't have as much time to prepare so I actually I didn't quit my job I transferred to the uh, the supermarket around the corner up in London and and still worked there still worked there at university but I remember my first lecture I went in and, and the lecturer said oh it's great it's great you're here but you don't have to and it was the first time First time education had ever been pitched to me in, in that way. I'd made a conscious decision myself to go there. And I just kind of, I, I really got stuck in, really enjoyed it. So I, I went to an internship uh, in Guangzhou in China with, with HSBC one summer. And um, kind of that then stood me, stood out as a kind of point of difference when applying for, for graduate schemes after university, because it was great. It's kind of not got the, the reputation of, of the Red Brit universities. So after, after finishing university, I was applying to graduate schemes and, and I got into to Grant Thornton, got in on a, on a management training scheme that rotated you around departments for the first six months. And one of those rotations was a corporate finance team called Growth Finance, which specialised, the, the mandate of the team was to, to advise founders on sub £10 million transactions. And predominantly what we did was raising from EIS and VCT funds. So I got to know the, the market pretty well. And work with my colleagues, my now colleagues, Simon and Anne really likes them. And, and when, a, when a role came up, I, I got in touch and the rest is history. Amazing. Fred, it's definitely an interesting story. I'm kind of, I can't help but be captivated by, by the parts where you were on a slightly different path to many of our colleagues in VC. So when you were doing plumbing and you kind of moved on to do a course in sport and it feels like you were kind of trying to figure out what the right thing was for you do you, was is there ever a moment where you think to yourself like what did make you agree to go through clearing with with your friend what what kind of changed for you was it just that you wanted to take a chance or do you think there was something inside you that that actually maybe wanted to do that it's a tough question I think there's there were probably lots of things that you can only you can only really realise now looking back. There there is a moment that kind of sticks out where a colleague in the supermarket supermarket I was working in got a got a big award. The area manager came down because she she'd been there 25 years and there was kind of a, a big big celebration, a bit a big kind of party for her. I I think I had a bit of a realisation that she still lived at home with her parents and I I just thought actually am I doing kind of the, the right thing? Is this is this where I want to to be full time uh, and and do I want that to be me in 25 years? So I probably had a, a few moments like that, as you do working those, those kind of, which probably pushed me and motivated me to, to get moving. But I can't really think of, apart from that, no, no real specific moments. And I suppose after, or probably from, maybe from the time that you went to, to uni and then you did the, the internship with HSBC and then you went on to a grad scheme with Grant Thornton. From then on, you've got a, a relatively stereotypical journey for for someone in VC but it sounds from the way that you expressed your journey that there are certain parts that you feel are more I don't know sort of defining of your journey than perhaps those ones are like how do you think about that? Yeah I, I look at look back at it all very fondly I really enjoyed it and actually I think there's lots of people have worked worked jobs whilst whilst at university and, and got got broad experience. I think I think those kind of jobs really set you up for for just the basic skills. So so people skills, being able to understand basic management skills. I guess the, the beauty of our our roles in VC are you get to meet all kind of ranges of people just completely across the board. You you'll be in a meeting 
with with someone who's completely different from, from the next and you've just kind of you've always got to flex your style and adapt to to kind of speaking to, to people on different levels and i think those kind of custom service style jobs really do teach you that so so i look back at it very fondly um, and think it I think it's really helped me today that's really interesting it would be good to unpack a bit what the the day-to-day looks like at pembroke i guess I'd say the beauty of our role is, is very varied. So, so we're constantly doing new stuff. At the moment, currently, we're, we're fundraising ourselves. So we get, I get kind of pulled in in a few different directions to support on the fundraise. So whether that be presentation or some data on, on something to build into our fundraising presentation. But a typical day, probably 70% of what I do is new investing. So either that, that will either be assessing deal flow or meeting founders, doing due diligence, through to actually targeting ourselves and, and looking at kind of market mapping and, and seeing where, where we want to be investing in. And the, the remaining 30% are supporting existing portfolio companies. So given my, my background, I, I can be quite helpful with follow-on funding. I've built, built a network over, over my time, time as an advisor of, of other investors. So especially around follow-on investments, I kind of support portfolio companies with that. One question that I always have is around VCTs. I think a lot of people are maybe uncertain about what exactly being a VCT means. Would you perhaps be able to unpack that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's something that we that we get asked to, and I think fundamentally we are, as the as the name suggests, uh, we're a venture capital trust, which is the VCT. So so we are we're a venture capital fund, but I think the how you can differentiate us from a traditional VC fund is is our underlying investor base. So we are we are a retail fund where you or I could invest from £5,000 up to £200,000 personally. And in order for doing so, the, the HMRC give you a tax break. So our investors receive 30% back on day one as a tax break, um, and they can invest every year. So, so we have some uh, a bunch of investors who invest every year, and we, we go out and fundraise every single year. So we are constantly on the fundraising cycle and whilst we're on the structure point, when we when we raise every year, we raise into our current share class. So investors who invest today will gain access to the companies we've been investing ever since inception. So slightly different to, to another kind of GP LP fund structure where the investors get access to fund one or fund two or fund three. So that's that's kind of the, the crux of a VCT. You also receive, as well as the 30% back on day one, you receive tax-free dividends. So we, we pay a dividend every year. And when we exit companies, you also receive a tax-free special dividend. How do the time horizons work around that, especially if you're paying a yearly dividend and you have these long cycles associated with, with startups? How do you, is it like, especially in the early days, how do you return money to the retail investor? It, it's a really good point. And it's something that, that, that kind of it, it's built a barrier to starting a VCT. So it's notoriously difficult to start a VCT fund. There's an expectation, as you, as you just mentioned, around the, the annual dividend. There are two ways to pay, to pay a dividend to VCT. One is using your share premium account. And two is by exiting a company. At the start, of, once, you've, once you've established a VCT, there's an expectation to pay a dividend. And if you're not going to pay that dividend, um, at the start, you're probably not going to be achieving exits. And you can't use your share premium account for the first three years. You can then, then you can get a sign-off after the first three years to start using the share premium account to pay that dividend. So it's very, very difficult to establish, to establish a VCT. So there, we don't have specific exit horizon and timelines. We... This year, we sold a company that we owned for 51 weeks, 
and we also held a company, sold a company that we uh, owned for about seven years. So we are not, we don't have mandated timeframes. Our investors, if they want to keep hold of their tax break, they must hold their shares in the VCT for five years. Okay, so there's some kind of alignment around taxation, which helps shift investors towards a more long-term mindset. Yes, I think investors in a VCT should be should be thinking at least five years. I I don't know very much about VCTs, and so in terms of the two ways of getting dividend of giving dividends, that first one that you mentioned, do you think you could explain that to me a little bit more? Was that the special dividend of the share premium? The share premium. So you essentially pay from your balance sheet without without exiting a company, and in the future you will, you will repay that when you when you start exiting companies, you'll repay that share premium account. Mm, okay, interesting. And so, what are the kind of like at a high level? What are the kind of assumptions behind how much you would pay out on those ones? So VCTs target, or typically target between 3p and 6p per year per share. What do you normally look for in investments? So what, what kind of stages and sizes and types of companies are you typically focused, both on like a personal level and on a fund level? So it's a broad theme. So we invest in consumer businesses and linked to our VCT status, UK-based so that, that's, that's kind of a, fu- a fun mandate for us. And we, we view consumer in quite a broad sense. We, we view it where we understand the end consumer. So if you look at our portfolio, 80 or 90% of it are, of them are traditional consumer brands that, that, you, that you know and hopefully use and love. But they're probably 10% on the periphery of that where you wouldn't look at them and think that's a consumer brand. But we feel like we understand it via our ownership or our network or, or previous experience in, in different roles. And we can understand the end consumers so or the end buyer of, of the product. In terms of stage, we are, we're investing when a company has around a million of annualized sales. We are, a typical Pembroke check is, is one to three million as an initial check. And I, and I say that because we, we, we've coined a phrase internally called stepping stone investing. So we, we believe it's, it's better for us and, and our investee companies and our investors to invest in, in small tranches. So rather than lots of other VCTs in the market will invest five million pounds on day one, we would much sooner invest two million pounds on day one and 12 or 18 months down the line, invest another two or, or three and, and build, build, our, build our state that way. And the, I guess the benefits to founders to this approach is they stay incentivized by way of ownership, which is, which is good for everyone that if they're motivated and working hard towards towards selling the business. And, and, and for us, selfishly, it allows us to make higher conviction investments as, as founders prove that they can use capital efficiently and, and, and we can back them in the next phase. Yeah, that's really interesting. How does that impact your kind of due diligence process? Would you say that there have been any changes since you made that decision? I think we spend a lot of time with those founders over, over those, those 12, 18 months. It's is, it is a real kind of key focus area for us we, we do a 100 day plan and 100 day review and we, we really do focus on that and spend a lot of time getting to know the business and interestingly Pembroke, uh, Pembroke we, we split out investment and portfolio so we have a team that, that, that manages the, the portfolio management side of the business and we have a team that manages investments and new investments and, and that's quite a helpful split because the portfolio team are kind of 
speaking with the companies day to day, helping them, making introductions, whereas the investment team is solely focused on investments. And then when the next fund, round of funding comes up, we can look at it objectively and make a proper informed investment decision, but using all the information, the data that our portfolio teams have been collecting over those 12 months. So it's almost like a new investment, but it's a lot faster process because we, we should, and we, we do have deep understanding of those businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And from your, from your experience, do you think that that approach is one that's becoming more prevalent in, in the investment space? I don't, I don't see the, the, kind of the other VCTs doing that. Um, but what, what's kind of commonplace at the moment in the VCT market is funds raising lots of money and, and having pressure to deploy the money. We, we're pretty sensible about what we raise. So we, we build a pipeline and we only raise the amount that we think we can sensibly deploy over the next 12 months. So I don't necessarily see it in, in the VCT space, but I do hear lots of in the VC space about kind of the, the, the larger funds becoming multi-stage funds and investing earlier. But I think that's a separate, um, they have separate vehicles to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I know what you mean. So in the VC space, it's more about, I suppose, those VC houses being able to capitalise on the investments that they've made and then see that through even further. Whereas what you're saying is it's sort of about much before that it's about the capital allocation and deployment schedule yes how do you find deals so is it an inbound motion is it an outbound motion a mix of both i think we've been very lucky historically and we've been we've been very blessed in that not many vcts invest in the consumer space now of late we've seen seen a couple enter and kind of start doing more consumer investments but Typically, it's, it's B2B SaaS businesses that, that are the main focus. So we've, as a VCT that's invested in, in consumer brands, we've been quite blessed in that if a consumer brand is looking to raise in the UK, they often do think of us and, and kind of get it tied to that. Our, our networks have grown, the, kind of the, the brand of Pembroke has grown, and we, we increasingly see inbound deal flow. And I think something I, I probably should have mentioned when I kind of introduced Pembroke, but we were... We were founded by some entrepreneurs aimed to be the financial for entrepreneurs. And that's built us a, in my opinion, a very good, very good brand in the market, whereby lots of our entrepreneurs and, and people that we've met or people that we've invested in suggest speaking to us. So we see an increasing amount of deal flow coming from our portfolio companies or people that we've met and, and said, actually, it's not one for us, but people have enjoyed, enjoyed the experience and, of working with us and have recommended us. So I think traditionally, yes, we've been very lucky, but in the last couple of years, we've, we've kind of increasingly built out our focus on market mapping, beginning to build large data sets around the companies, starting to track them and keeping in regular touch with them. So I think it's, it's a mix of uh, inbound and outbound, but I think we're probably more weighted on inbound currently. I was going to ask you next about, about some of the most recent deals that you've done or potentially some of your favourite ones. Yeah, absolutely. The the favourite question is tricky, isn't it? Is asking you to it's a bit like asking you to pick your, your favourite child. So uh, so I, I won't I won't get myself in trouble and, and pick a favourite. Yeah, there's a couple of publicly announced ones that, that are pretty exciting, both with an overarching ESG theme actually. So so one business is called Coat Paints and the other is called Droplets. Coat Paints is I guess what it says on the tin, it, it's a paint company that's, that's focused on sustainability, but most importantly, paint quality. So we, we spent some time, uh, one of the two founders, Rob, sent us a, sent us a long big chart around the quality 
and uh, viscosity of the paint, and we, we had some fun looking at that. But, but our view on consumer challenges is if you are going to disrupt uh, a big market or uh, buying process, you've, you've got to be kind of beating them on quality first, and, and the rest, the other the kind of stuff on the periphery should come second. So, so they focused on kind of real good quality, great colours that, that people are excited about. And as a secondary, they are completely carbon neutral. And they, and they told us a really interesting fact in diligence that the, the air that you breathe inside your house is actually more polluted than the air outside of it, which is, which is kind, of a, kind of a scary stat, but it's all linked to uh, VOCs or volatile compounds that are in things like the MDF wood, that horrible smell if you ever painted woodwork that you can't get out of your house for, for 12 hours. You really shouldn't be breathing those things in. So we, we really like we really like those guys and they're also changing the way that you, you buy paint. It's online, it's a month. They don't make you feel silly when you go into a big kind of hardware store and, and people kind of treat you, think you're, you're asking silly questions and then they're not necessarily that happy with you. So yeah, really, really kind of friendly and, and consumer friendly buying process. And similarly, or I guess on a similar note, there's a business called Dropless that's car one, but with almost no water they use some some special products canuba wax is one of them to to clean cars and, and other vehicles without really using water and there's obviously a great um environmental angle there with, with the water saving but there's also a good social and governance angle in the behind the sex industry the car washing industry is the second highest employer in the uk of one day slaves and is worth it's worth having a google and having a look into it we, we spent some time there in diligence looking at the government reports, but it, it's a real big problem. And, and kind of the roadside car washes where you, you go and get your car washed for five pounds can often be employing modern day slaves. And Dropless are trying to combat that. Really, really sensible HR processes. They really look after their, their, their people. They promote them. And just a really, really, really a pair of really smart guys going after this problem that we're really excited about. And interestingly, both of those investments have a, an overarching ESG theme. Mm, that is really interesting so I've actually used Dropless a few times so I'm very excited to hear that you invested in them and I did not know the stuff about modern slavery so now I feel even more warm and fuzzy well the acid test what did you think I thought it was very good the reason I used it is because I used to have my car in London with me and I just didn't know where the nearest car wash was and to be honest it's kind of more trouble than it's worth to get in the car in like near central London and drive it somewhere to have it cleaned. So I just did, did a bit of research and tried to find like a sustainable and ethical and easy car washing service that would come to me. So it was kind of the convenience factor that sold me on it, but then everything else was even better. And the experience is great. Literally, I was just about to say, you can tell that they treat their employees well because God, you'd think I've invested in them because that was so nice. It's another element of the business that we really like. So they have a big B2C arm, so, so you washing your car in London, but actually for large fleets, um, large companies that have 10 or 12 vans that they don't want to drive all of them to one place, Dropless is mobile as well, so it comes to them. And the, the waterless side of the, the washing also combats things like drainage, which is a problem. So if you have your fleet based in a car park where there is no drainage, you should not um, be using the storm drains to uh, dilute and kind of send washing products down. 
So, so yeah, there's another really interesting part of the business. They have a big B2B side as well as B2C. Mm, yeah, definitely. I can really see that. And do you find that the ESG investments have any impact on your fundraising, whether more recently or since, you know, since you've been with the fund? It's something that we talk about a lot. I, I've not really got any data to support uh, its impact on our fundraising. And I, and I wouldn't, I'd never call us an ESG fund. There, there are specialist vehicles and funds for that. But what I would say on, on the topic is my, my personal view here is if you were a clothing business 10 years ago and you had a website and someone could buy, buy your T-shirts online, you might say to your friend, Oh, this, this brand's great. You can they have a website and you can buy their clothes online. You don't need to go into the store. And it acted as a differentiator almost. But today it's absolutely expected that a, that a brand will have a website and nearly all nearly all do. Um, my, my personal view is the same will happen with, with ESG and sustainability. Right. So right now you may buy a t-shirt from Finisterre because you think actually I really like the, the, the environment and, and proper business processes. But in five or 10 years time, it, I think being a business that has proper ESG practices across, across its whole, the whole range of the, the whole side of the business um, will become just commonplace and market norm. So I think as a consumer investor, it's got to be front and centre. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about, you know, whether investors who are interested in in Pembroke are thinking about ESG or whether it's almost become second nature already that is, you know, the kind of hygiene factor that, that people just expect or whether, yeah, whether it was something that, that still needed to be thought about when planning for fund deployment. Yeah, it's something that we that we spend a lot of time thinking about. It was, it was the topic of our most recent newsletter that we sent out to our investors because they're interested in it. And actually, the, the, example, the two examples I gave, Dropbox and Coke, it's very obvious. Um, you go onto their website, you can immediately see, but there are, there are lots of other portfolio companies that, that are doing, doing really great things um, from an ESG perspective. And we really like it where it's not necessarily the reason you buy that brand or the reason you choose that product or service. Uh, you choose it because it's better than the existing. And then as an afterthought, you read the label or you see you see a disclaimer somewhere or you see some small print and you think, oh, great. And, it, and it's that moment of delight. I, I've all, it's also a, a kind of a, a good business from an ESG perspective. Perfect. I, I think we've discussed many really interesting facets about Pembroke today. And I was just wondering on behalf of our listeners, many of whom are looking to, to go into venture, how you think about recruiting and whether you're you're hiring right now what you look for in people so i think we look for uh people with a real interesting consumer and people who can who can demonstrate that i, th- I think it's really important because it's it's so much of what of what we do and, and we we also really enjoy it and we enjoy the debates in our in our weekly investment meetings and, and on team meetings i think we're, we're all passionate about it and and I think someone joining the firm, we'd want them to have a, a similar view. We don't actually have a vacancy live, but we we will be hiring in the coming months in, in the investment team. So uh, we, we'd love to hear from, from anyone with a, with a real passion for passion for consumer. So yeah, please, please do get in touch. We, we are we are actively meeting people that, that we know um, ahead of a hire. And in terms of how we, we think about hiring, it, it's similar to how we think about investing. We often meet companies that are slightly too early for us. Have a, we're up front, we say, look, it's probably too early for us, but I'm happy to have a, have a short call. Uh, we spend some time with the founder, 
listen, listen to the, the business, get excited about it, ask them to keep us on their distribution list for monthly investor updates. And then when the time is right, we, we build a relationship with them. We should have a, a better understanding of the, the, the business. Um, and it makes the investing process a bit, bit easier. And it's the same with hiring. We, we like to meet people, stay in touch with them, and kind of over the long term, when a, when a role does become live, get, get back in contact. Perfect. Well, hopefully we could send a few people your way then. Um, on that note, what is, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I think my email address is on my profile somewhere. So, and this was on my website. So just get in touch. I'll try and get back to people as quick as possible. Do you have any kind of call out to founders who you might like to hear from? What, what type of folks do you want to hear from and not from? Anyone in the consumer space that's going after a really big industry. So where we can, so, so the, the paint example and the car washing example are, are both good examples. There are, very big businesses in that market that in our in our opinion have lost the ability to innovate and the markets are ripe for disruption from a new exciting consumer brand so i think that that's where we get most excited when it's a consumer brand disrupting something that we can look to and think yes that's a large market and and it's it's simple to understand and i guess they are based in the uk doing around a million of annualized revenue but as i said earlier we're we're always happy to, to have conversations slightly earlier than that um, and looking to raise between, I guess, one and five million. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Fred. It's been a very um, intriguing episode. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Please do follow and subscribe if you want to hear more from us. And you can reach us on Twitter at associated underscore pod or get in contact with us via email, which is associatedpodcast at gmail.com. 